the sound of praise for your Sunday morning. The only one who could ever teach me. Introducing Reverend A.R. Bernard of the Christian Cultural Center. Was the son of a preacher man. And Rabbi Joseph Potasnik of Religion on the Line. The only one who could ever teach me. Now, on Talk Radio 77 WABC, here's the Reb and the Rabbi, where faith matters. Good morning. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Rabbi, I got to tell you an interesting conversation. A friend of mine, uh, his daughter came home. She purchased those expensive jeans all cut up. You see them all cut up in the front? Uh, yeah. He says, listen, <laughs> and they're very expensive. He said, why don't you just buy a regular pair of jeans, come home, I'll cut them up, I'll do that. Oh, Dad, you know, you don't know how to do that. You know, it's like like there's an art to cutting up jeans. This is a Rabbi, special. if you had holes in your jeans when I was a kid, yeah. you were considered poor, yeah. plain and simple. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wore hand-me-downs and I was an only child. That's how, you, that's how you know you're poor. Hey, we're, that's a little stand-up here this morning, Rabbi. Yeah. All right. There's a lot to talk about. And uh, we're going to have on as a guest later on today, Rabbi David Seth Kirshner, who's written an article about the Whoopi Goldberg apology. And you and I have had discussions about the meaning and message of forgiveness. What does it mean Mm. to forgive? Why do some people find it so difficult to forgive? What's required? You know, and one of the statements in Jewish tradition is judge the entirety of a person. Don't define an entire person by one mistake. Yeah. by one ill-advised statement, by one incorrect statement. People do say things that are wrong. If they're willing to apologize, if they're willing to say, I'm sorry, without any qualification, not, you know, if you if I've offended you, no if. I've offended you, and I'm sorry, then in my tradition, as I'm sure in yours, you have a responsibility to say, I forgive you. You sincerely apologize, um, and let's use this as a transformational moment. Let's... You know, whatever the issue was, let's see how we can learn more about it so we don't go back to the same place. And, and that word is important because forgiveness is a response to an apology. Mm-hmm. So in as much as Whoopi issued an apology, we have to now decide, are we going to forgive her? And, you know, we'll probably get to talk about this with Rabbi Kirshner, but, you know, do we judge the person by their sincerity? Uh, what's the measuring stick? And, and there are people, Rabbi, who, who don't want to forgive be, because they, 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 they feel that somehow if, if they forgive, it condones the actions of the person who offended. Uh, and that's, that's far from the truth, you yeah, know, and, just because I forgive it. That, and, and also, not only it condones, but they feel that the person gets away with something. You know, I meet people who are forgiving who say, look, let's let it go, and then I meet those, as I'm sure you have, who just refuse to let something go. It's as if they need this grudge. We have this beautiful ceremony called Tashlich. We walk down to the water, and we cast away our sins during the new year. We take bread, use bread, throw it into one, and say, this symbolizes casting away our sins, because if you look in the, in, in the writings of Micah, cast your sins into the sea. There is, it's, it makes you, you're able to deal with the day-to-day life when you're not bogged down, when you're not carrying all of the anger, all of the grievances. Let them go. Uh, and especially, someone says, I'm sorry. You know, what, what more do you want? And I, I just think we, you know, we, we don't do ourselves a favor. We don't advance a relationship. when We keep holding on to that kind of anger. That's why the word danger has the word anger in it. Yeah, that's good. You know, you said something very important. You become bogged down. There's a wonderful principle that whatever you fail to forgive in life, you attach to yourself Mm -hmm. for the rest of your life. You become yoked to it. Uh, And while the other person can go on and have a wonderful life and forget all about it, but you continue to carry it because your failure to forgive yokes you to it. So forgiveness is not just a gift to the person who offended you. It's a gift to yourself yep. so that you can move on. You know, one of the things that we're taught to advise couples getting married is that it's perfectly acceptable to be hysterical. Get into an argument. You can be hysterical, but what you should not do is be historical. You know, mm, recalling all good. of the other arguments. Oh, remember when you said this? Remember when you did this? And all of a sudden you're rehashing. 
You're bringing back all of the anger and all of the grievances, and now you're back to the same place you said you didn't want to be at when you forgave. See, that's that's why I bring a notebook to the studio. So <laughs> Wait a minute. I hear you talk. Wait a minute. I can you know what Millennial would say to you? Rev, <laughs> what's a notebook? Yes, a notebook? That's true. What is I that? Just dated myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, no, but there is a lot. To, and, and by the way, it's the program was the view. It's not the history channel. You know, it's about people expressing their views. You like them, you don't like it. It's, it, it doesn't define, doesn't define, you know, uh, the issues as uh, they should be delineated. It's just people's opinions. In fact, I'm thinking of doing a new, my own program called The Jew with the View. The Jew with the View. Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, you don't like it, criticize it, the person's wrong, Paul, let's move on. There are bigger issues in life that we have to yeah. deal with. You know, uh, that uh, we, we talk about the suffering that's going on right now in Beijing, the Uyghurs. Uh, you know, let's not overlook the human suffering. Right. That warrants well, look, a response. We talked a little bit about Whoopi last week, you know, with our yep. guests. And here we are, you know, it, it's still fresh in the, in the minds of people. Uh, but it, it's not so much Whoopi. It's, it's how we respond to situations like this as a society. That's why the conversation is still fresh. By the way, you put a microphone in front of people, we'll all say something we regret. Question, the challenge is, how do you handle once you've said it? And let me give some wisdom. The mic is always on, even when it's off. Right. <laughs> the cameras are always <laughs> rolling. On, even when you, and, and if they tell you it's off the record, it's always on the record. Right, exactly. <laughs> they say, I'm not listening. They're listening. They're listening. Right, right. All right, well, you know, David Seth Kirshner is an interesting uh, individual. He uh, has a wealth of knowledge. He's been a student uh, of Torah, Talmud over the years, and also we're very well versed in, in current day affairs. Uh, I read a number of his articles, and uh, I, I've watched him over the years grow. And He's really an inspiring leader, and we're very fortunate we have him on the program today. So I look forward to that uh, conversation with him, Rabbi David Seth Kirshner. And he's yeah. at Temple Emanuel in Closter, New Jersey, beautiful congregation, great rabbi, um, and a great family as well. So stay tuned to the dynamic duo, the Reverend the Rabbi, right here on 77 WABC. Okay. Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Pachasnik, the Rev and the Rabbi. Talk Radio 77 WABC and the all-new WABCradio.com. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Pachasnik. I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. You know, Reverend, one of the nicest gifts you can give yourself is a friendship, and I've been blessed uh, with a few gifts, and one of them being the friendship of Rabbi David Seth Kirshner, who is the spiritual leader of Temple Emanuel of close to New Jersey and past president of the New York Board of Rabbis. He's a prolific writer. Uh, one of his articles recently appeared uh, in the Times of Israel entitled The Lost Value of an Apology, talking about Whoopi Goldberg's statement. So it's a great honor for me. Uh, to welcome close friend, really a member of my family, Rabbi David Seth Kirshner. Good morning, David. Good morning. Thank you for including me in your family. And good morning, Reverend. It's good to be back on the line with both of you. Always good to have you on the program, Rabbi. Good to have you with us. Thank so you. where do we begin? Uh, well, uh, I would say the following. One, we're growing up. Our parents teach us the value of certain words. Please, thank you, and I'm sorry. And we were taught at a young age that when you do something you feel is wrong, you apologize for it. And when I was growing up, an apology was accepted if it was felt it was sincere, and you moved on, right? It wasn't something you had, a, it wasn't a scarlet letter. Uh, David, you wrote a, a wonderful piece that I recommend to everyone titled The Lost Value of an Apology, uh, in which you say, what more do we want from Whoopi Goldberg? She you know, she expressed her view, which later on, she says she stands corrected. Why shouldn't that be sufficient? We have to have a suspension. We have to have an ongoing discussion about the suspension, about the quality of the apology. I mean, I see, I agree with what you're saying. I'm sorry. I mean it. And now what? You know, I, I think there are two things at, uh, at play when it comes to the issue related to Whoopi. One is her apology. She did exactly what Maimonides asked of us. Maimonides said three things. Admit you're wrong, 
show sincere remorse, and make the wrong as right as possible. What became on the air, she tweeted to her million of followers. She apologized for her remarks. Um, she was unambiguous. She was unapologetic. There was no whataboutisms. And she had, had the head of the Anti-Defamation League come on as part of her responsibility to be better educated and to speak better. Further to that issue is Whoopi's had a long history in show business, and she's been outspoken on many issues. But she has always been a fierce friend of the Jewish people and of all people. She's never a person with hate in her heart. She hasn't been mean-spirited to anybody. So to paint her in this category as someone who's anti-Semitic or full of hate I think is silly. You know, she's been an ally, and we need to treat her as an ally who misspoke but owned her words. That's number one. Number two has to do with the merits of what she was saying. And if we start to unpack some of the merits of what she's saying, Jewish people have been struggling for ages with the definition of who is a Jew. Are we a religion? Are we a race? Are we a people? And the answer to that question is, I think, yes. We are all of those things. So I don't even think she was so terribly wrong in what she said. I think if we take the definition of race as we see it today, there is there are merits to what she said, clearly very different than 1938 to 1945, Nuremberg laws, and how indeed uh, Hitler painted us as a race. So I think there's a lot of meat on the bone for that conversation. But I think if I were running a PR firm or a public relations guru, I would have been incredibly satisfied at the clinic that Whoopi put on for how one should apologize, and I think that would have been enough. You know, it's a shame that we're at the place in our society where we have to carefully and closely examine the uh, sincerity of an apology. It's not just the apology. It's, are they sincere enough? Uh, was there enough passion, emotion, are they really sorry? So even when we give an apology, you know, we're questioning whether that ap apology is real or, or, or synthetic. You know, uh, what do you say to that? You know, I have a very simple response to that. Whether we're talking about Whoopi Goldberg or we're talking about our children who are making apologies to their friends or to their parents or their, their siblings or between people in relationship, between spouses, it is not up to us to judge the sincerity of their apology. Their deeds judge the sincerity. If we think someone didn't say it properly or, or we come up with all types of cockamamie excuses as to why they did it or, or what was in it for them or whether it was felt or not felt or authentic, who are we to be in their heart and know that? Their deeds prove that. And to me, in the case of Whoopi in particular, her deed of tweeting standing in front of the audience and beginning the view and then having the ADL on this topic and saying that she'll be better informed when speaking about it, those are deeds that prove the sincerity. We cannot judge sincerity just on tone and words. Deeds dictate the sincerity of the apology. Belief is measured by behavior. You know, it's what you do that determines how sincere you are with what you said. Uh, you know what I but, find very interesting? Here's a question, Rabbi. I, yeah. I'm sorry. I have to cut in here, Rabbi, because, all right, so we, we have, you know, uh, it, this is all in our world, repentance and, and, and forgiveness, uh, because essentially apology is a regretful acknowledgement of an, offen an offense or a failure, and to acknowledge something means you repent of it, which means to change in your thinking and evidence by your actions. But on the forgiveness side, the other side of the apology, what we, what we, how we respond to the apology, because we were just talking about, you know, measuring the sincerity of it. On the forgiveness side, do we respond to the apology with forgiveness as a gift or something that has to be earned over time? Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I look at it when someone apologizes. I think you have an opportunity to use what was said and develop a relationship where you have this teachable moment. For example, as a result of what Whoopi said, and David Seth Kirshner alluded to it before, we can have an entire discussion about race, what is race, but more important, we can have a discussion on the Holocaust. We've been talking for a long time 
about mandatory Holocaust education in this country. We have it in some states, but not in the entire country. And what a moment this would be to say, let's look at what happened in the Holocaust and what it says to our people today, especially in terms of the rising uh, hatred that we see in too many segments of society. So I think it could be a, a catalyst for an examination of behavior uh, that we can seek to improve. So it's a teaching moment for me. We can do a lot with it. So, yeah, we, we forgive because you can't, there's no barometer to measure sincerity. But now what? And I, I'm saying so, we can turn this into a real positive. I agree. I, I want to share a fantastic irony of this entire whoopee case with you. This conversation came to be because they were having a conversation on The View, which is, you know, a a program to discuss hot topics going on in the world, because in a Tennessee middle school in the eighth grade, they canceled out of the curriculum the book Mouse, Mouse, M-A-U-S, which is a um, Pulitzer Prize winning um, graphic novel that talks about the history of the Holocaust in an appropriate way for that age group. Just a few days later, on February 2nd, also in Tennessee, a very well-regarded pastor by the name of Greg Locke had a public book burning, a public book burning, where he burned the two books Twilight and Harry Potter for what he said was witchcraft and sorcery, and hundreds and hundreds of people came out for this public book burning. Now, Heinrich Heine, who was a Jewish philosopher and historian in Berlin, wrote in 1797, in a place where they burn books, they will eventually burn people. And if you go today to Berlin, to a place called Babelplatz, there is a memorial to Heine's lesson where there was a giant book burning in 1937 of Jewish books, communist books, other political Catholic books, and of course, we all know the future of the Jewish people and how Heine's words became prophetic. I share that fantastic irony with you because the whole conversation was about canceling, canceling the book Mouse and Spiegelman, canceling whether it's Twilight and Harry Potter. And then what ends up happening? We cancel Whoopi Goldberg. And the greatest irony here is that we know that when we cancel these things out, we will then cancel out speech that is truth, speech that is blessing, speech that is good. And I am very worried about canceling being the public or metaphorical book burning of our generation and it's clearly happening in the backdrop of real book burning as well now that's that's i like that that is beautiful metaphor uh uh, you know it just because this is this is cancel culture the interesting thing also you speak of that irony and the interesting thing is that the 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 mcminn county school board Mm -hmm. who banned the book they they banned it because of concerns about nudity and profanity it is a graphic novel you know, that depicts the Holocaust. Uh, but it, there, it wasn't even a conversation about the Holocaust, uh, why the book was banned. So here we are, it leads us to this necessary conversation, but the heart of it was not even considered. And Could you-, you imagine, Reverend, if Alex Haley's book Roots, which also has profanity in it, if there was any graphic depiction of women as slaves and there were breasts that were shown, and as a result of that, we canceled out the education of Alex Haley's roots. I and we lose the whole story, the right. We lose born the point. in the early 70s, grew up in the 80s. Roots was a pivotal part of my childhood and my <clears throat> brother's uh, and family's childhood. Watching that as a family was a really critical part, I remember, of, of my education and formation of who I was as a family and what our value system was. And right. if we took out the history of the black people in America because of these ancillary, uncomfortable feelings, then we erase such a critical and important, valuable lesson in who we are as a people, how we've grown and what we've learned. Let me that tell you something. wildly dangerous. Let me tell you something that happened. Museum of Jewish Heritage had an exhibit on Auschwitz, and a cattle car was sent to the museum, cattle car that we used to transport Jews to Auschwitz, and the cattle car was freshly painted. And we looked at that and said, wait a minute, freshly painted to what? To cover up, to whitewash what occurred to, you know, you don't want any blood spots or who knows what other stains were there. And this is what happens. We, we want to sanitize the story so we don't see what graphically happened to people who were, uh, you know, completely, uh, all humanity was uh, taken from them. 
that's something our kids shouldn't see? Is that something too harsh for them to see? Uh, uh, so I, I think it's the wrong message. By the way, back to Tennessee. You heard there was a, there's a school there that has some kind of biblical history class, a uh, secular school. And the teacher s- spoke about the different names of God that cannot be pronounced by the Jews. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, I saw and that the one. teacher mm-hmm. said to the students, all of whom except I think for one were Christian, if you want to torture a Jew, force that person or get that person to say one of those names. This was taught by a teacher in a school in Tennessee. So maybe we need to re-examine what we're teaching, what we're not teaching. I want to remind you both of a name, and the name is Linda Hooper, who is the uh, former principal of the Whitwell Middle School in Tennessee. Now, Linda Hooper is an amazing individual, not Jewish in a very small rural town, and she was responsible for what became the documentary and the project called Paperclips, mm-hmm. right. where she yeah. helped teach about the Holocaust by collecting six million paperclips with her students around town. She did this in 2001. And the Holocaust Museum ended up sending them a cattle car, uh, again, one that was used during the war, not freshly painted. And the students made it their prerogative to bring the six million paperclips into the cattle car. And this is a group of non-Jewish kids who over the course of generations now, because of Linda Hooper, have learned about the Holocaust and did so in a beautiful, meaningful way, also in a middle school. So I say that because I don't want to throw all of Tennessee out. Yeah, it's not an attack on the state of Tennessee. (laughs) It's a a mentality that could be present in any state, anywhere. Uh, It just so happened, you know, it happened in Tennessee. But it's it's important. There are good educators in Tennessee also who are appropriately teaching about the Holocaust, its history, in an age-appropriate and meaningful way that can have deep impact for generations to come. That is what's important. I I was part of the busing program, the desegregation program. So I'm living, living in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, and we were bused out to, to white schools in Queens. And I grew up in two contexts, uh, two, two neighborhoods, and built relationships uh, in, in both contexts. By the time I got to high school, we started organizing. Uh, it, it, we, a little protesting, they call it writing, we call it protest. But it was all about getting African-American studies into our school because we felt like spectators in a history class because we weren't a part of that history or, or our presence was very scarce. I think it's important that as a society evolves and grows and changes uh, towards its, its, its values, that we understand the full implications of the history. And like you said, Rabbi, uh, well, I got two rabbis here, <laughs> Rabbi Sasnik, uh, not whitewash it. You know, yes, make it age appropriate, but don't lose the story. Don't lose the importance of that history and how it adds to who we are as a nation. Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Batasnik, where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi. Talk Radio 77 WABC and the all-new WABCRadio.com. Look, I have to say, isn't it, what does it say that we cannot get mandatory Holocaust education? Can anybody give a reason why we shouldn't have it? And and it's not just about what happened to the Jews. It's it's what could happen to any people. And we could talk about, uh, you know, other horrors in history. Uh, and the, the danger of keeping silent when you should be shouting. And yet, we still don't have this legislation passed. So it's not just about Tennessee. You know, it's about a thinking in this country that doesn't want to go to a certain place it needs to go. Yeah, we've come a long way. We've come a long way. And, and I think this is where we, we use our influence. Every year, February, Black History Month, we have 3,000 school kids that come from the public schools around Brooklyn, come to our church and our performing arts ministries, which is made up of you know people who are on Broadway and uh, uh, et cetera. They come together and they put together a complete uh, African-American history uh, lesson, but it includes the Holocaust. It includes what happened in the Berlin Wall. It includes all of that. Because, unfortunately, our kids don't know these stories. They don't know this history. And that's our way of doing everything we can to bring that level of education 
to the children. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, Reverend, I'm gonna I'm gonna say something uh, perhaps a little bit provocative, and I think it's a responsibility of the Jewish people and others. And this is something that my teacher Tal Becker has said regularly when it comes to uh, fighting between the Palestinians and the Israelis, and that is we are we are vying, we are gunning for the championship of victimhood, that we want to hold the trophy saying we are the bigger victim. We've had more trauma in our life. And I think that at times the African-American community in America and the Jewish community in America go toe-to-toe on these things. And there are times where people say, oh, you've got to be kidding me on this front or on the other front. What we need to do a better job at is, A, demonstrating empathy for the other side, and B, realizing that both groups have gone through trauma. They're not the same, but both groups are going through trauma. And we need to jettison the whataboutisms. We, as the Jewish people, need to be the first offering consolation, condemnation at all of these historically black colleges that have been receiving bomb threats and death threats on a daily basis during Black History Month, and let them know they have a friend in the Jewish community, that we stand shoulder to shoulder with them, and that we will not sit idly by. And it has nothing to do with our history. We yeah, just won't do it. it we yeah, cannot have that, comparative. Yeah, I make a good point, uh, Rabbi. This competitive victimization. Yeah. My problem is worse than anyone else's, and 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 you know we 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 hold that up uh, for the kind of sympathy. We we've all been wounded in some way. We've all experienced this kind of trauma, uh, and I, I I will tell you, uh, we we could look at the history and say that at certain periods some uh, communities experienced it more than others, but across the board. It's a pain that we have to move on from, but we can't do it if we don't appreciate understanding that history so we don't repeat it. There is nothing good that comes of it. We indulge in this competitive, comparative suffering. You know, my uh, you have a single hernia, I have a double hernia. It goes (laughs) nowhere except to a negative place. so I, I agree with you. Let's let, let just extend, you know, uh, what goes on to what's happening today, what, what's happened before what's happening today. Look at the Beijing Olympics, all right? It's no secret or shouldn't be a secret that the Uyghurs are being persecuted by China. And yet you wouldn't know that by looking at the results of the Olympics, by looking at the stories. Very little coverage, uh, Rabbi, Reverend, I hear here and there, you know, someone with a sign walking, uh, not at the Olympics, but in his or her own country, maybe a little demonstration, but nothing significant. And you get a glimpse of the past. Say, wait a minute, there was suffering going on and people went about their business. Everything kept going on as normal. Isn't that something that should worry us? So wait, let me understand this. You're saying that the Olympics should include coverage of the suffering that's going on I, in these places I think like we, China? I think we need to talk about it. I think, yeah, I think people need to highlight, you know what? This is not just about sports. You can't, you can't look at this and, uh, in a vacuum. What's being will, it, will it take away from the Olympics, though? I no. mean, when, well, when what, you have media well, I think we got to prioritize like that, will, will it overshadow... You know the joy of winning gold medals, the competition. How do you balance that out? Well, do you remember? Remember the uh, the Israeli Olympics that were slaughtered, the Israeli Olympians that were slaughtered, the athletes. Yeah, yeah. And finally, was Bob Costas that went on uh, at the opening of the game some years ago and said, "We have to remember those who lost their lives. We can't, you know, we we can't just let it go because uh, in the past they were not mentioned. They weren't remembered." Mm. Yep. There, there was no moment of silence in the Olympics until Rio, and it took more than 45 years for their death to be properly recognized. And what I think you're talking about, Joe, is, is a greater issue with the IOC, which is how are they regularly going to places like Sochi and China and rewarding countries that have a history of human rights abuses? I realize that it narrows the pool down of these countries, and it might take away from the the charter of of the Olympics. But I think that there is some intersectionality here where we're asking ourselves, how is it we can be a place that celebrates every single individual Olympian if we don't celebrate individual rights? And that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and again, it's you know you look back at the Holocaust. 
And one of the great Yiddish poets said, the flowers kept blossoming, the murderers kept murdering, uh, and life went on. And I, I just think that people need to be cognizant of the human suffering that is taking place within China and not have just this kind of, again, whitewashing, sugarcoating, call it what you want, but we cannot totally ignore the suffering that goes on there as if the show must go on because sometimes the show has to stop. and We have to, you know, have a reality check and express uh, our denunciation at the denial of human rights. Uh, I agree. All right. It's good preaching, Rabbi. Thank you. Let's go to something totally, both of you are significant preacher, teachers, leaders of congregations. We've gone through this incredible COVID challenge, and Zoom has now become part of everyday vocabulary, the Temple of Zoom. Uh, Talk to us, Rabbi Kirshner. Where do you see the next chapter in terms of, you know, intersectionality between sitting in the pew, watching it on a screen? Boy, this, it's as if you're sitting in my office for our conversations with our leadership lately, because this is the pickle that we are in. Um, we, during the, the um, pandemic, have had hybrid services during the week. That means some people join us for services by Zoom with specific requirements. They have to have their cameras on and answer, those kinds of things, and some people in person. We had an event last night called What's the Big Whoop, talking indeed about Whoopi Goldberg, um, this was on Wednesday night for, for when our, our listeners will, will take part of this. We had 89 people online and 54 people in person. And the person who's immunocompromised, the person who's joining us from Texas and Chicago, boy, it is great to have the beauty of Zoom. But at the same time, I am very worried about the crutch that Zoom has created for the people who live three miles away or the people who don't want to get out of their pajamas, or the people who just aren't making the effort to come to synagogue. To me, the future of the faith-based world is in person. And while we can use the um, technology of Zoom for some environments and some places, we're going to have to take the masks off, and we're going to have to turn the Zoom off as well. So eventually... Zoom enough, as we say, so that we can get back together because it is critical for our future. Yeah, I, you know, I, I have to, I have to say that the virtual world has given a platform to many people to to access all kinds of spiritual content on demand, and and you know, this generation loves the convenience of on demand, and 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 for us and for many, it filled the void that was created by the isolation of COVID uh, nineteen. But a house of worship whether it's a synagogue, a temple, a mosque, whatever it is, it's more than accessing content, you know, music and, and, and a prayer. It's a community of people with shared beliefs, values, vision, experiences, you know, and genuine community requires personal presence. I believe that wholeheartedly. One cannot take the place of the other. We have people who only see each other from Sunday to Sunday, and they look forward to it because they get a chance to not only worship together, but interact in community. You know, Rev, Rabbi, in our blessing, the traditional blessing, you know, may the Lord bless you and keep you, there are three conditions that have to be met. One, it's got to be face-to-face. And when that was written, there was no Zoom. Second, it's got to be with, in the language, you know, in, in peaceful language. They also holy language. If you can do it in Hebrew, that's fine. The third is with an outstretched hand. And it's hard to do that on Zoom. So I think if you look at the original intention, it was for us to be face-to-face, hand-to-hand, heart-to-heart, speaking, you know, respectfully to one another. I was out in Fort Dix, New Jersey, your state, Rabbi Kirshner. And I was there as part of an interfaith group to welcome Afghan refugees. And I went over to some of the families. and One guy I connected with immediately, and I said, just give me a hug. Give me a hug. And we hugged each other, and I said to him, you see, you can't do that on Zoom. Uh, There is something, that human warmth, that just changes the entire climate. Uh, So I hope we get back to that, but I I suspect we're going to be living with a hybrid for a while. It's not going away tomorrow. Let me me throw a wrench in the work, Rabbi Potastic, because there's something called the the metaverse, which is 3D. You, You create an avatar of yourself, 
and you enter this world, and you actually go to church. You sit in a in in a in a pew. Yeah. Uh, you interact with your neighbors who are other avatars. You walk through the building. You can go to a class, uh, and they're adding uh, senses to it. So if you have, you know, the right equipment, you can actually begin to feel through your senses the experience that's there. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. Our moms, our moms didn't raise us to be avatars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm curious, Reverend. If the avatars in my synagogue would also fall asleep during my sermon, yeah. <laughs> and also when they you probably make it, will be programmed to, <laughs> and when you make an appeal for funds, will the avatars reach into their pockets and support the effort? You know, yeah, we, there we, you go. We've come to the the end of the segment. I, I just want to say, Rabbi Kirshner and Rev, I've known this rabbi for a number of years, and I remember when uh, he first began. Uh, and I was always an admirer then. I saw this is a guy with boundless talent. This is a guy who's going to change, you know, uh, a place spiritually. And he has brought this uplifting spirit uh, to where he is and wherever he goes. Uh, he's a, a profound thinker, prolific writer, uh, and a warm human being. That combination is something that is so, so needed in our pulpits today. So we're very privileged to have you with us and uh, look forward to your being with us uh, for many, many more interviews on the Rev and the Rabbi. I have to say ditto. Uh, Rabbi, thank you. My, the check is in the mail for those kind words. I really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I've heard that from you before, and I, yeah. I go to that mailbox every day, and, you know, you, there isn't even an hope. avatar that brings me You go to that mailbox with hope. I'm looking to that for you, the avatar to bring me something. Yeah. You, you, <laughs> you read those comments exactly yeah. as I wrote them out for you. That was perfect. And, and by the way, uh, Rev, let me tell you something else about the rabbi. I, I often say you judge a person by how he is with his family. Uh, not only is he an outstanding husband, father, but a son. I know his mom. To see how he treats his parent... Uh, for me, and I knew his father of blessed memory. When I first became a member of the Board of Rabbis, I, I, I met his dad. And to see how he treats his family speaks volumes to me. You want to, you, you say belief is measured by behavior, it's your deeds. David Seth Kirshner, your deeds really, really reveal who you really are. And uh, we are proud of you uh, as others who know you are proud of you. Thank you. Thank Amen you. To it's that. an honor to be with you both. And, uh, Let's, let's enjoy the Super Bowl today in good health and peace. Amen to that. Wait a minute. This, the Patriots are not in it. What's to enjoy? Brady is hey, retired. Hey, hey. Brady is now emeritus. <laughs> the game is not over just because Brady's not in it anymore, uh, you Boston fans. Uh, and to all you Boston fans out there, I apologize. But stay tuned. We'll be back <laughs> with more right here on 77 WABC, The Rev and the Rabbi. Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, Talk Radio 77 WABC and the all-new WABCRadio.com. Look, I have to say, isn't it, what does it say that we cannot get mandatory Holocaust education? Can anybody give a reason why we shouldn't have it? And, and it's not just about what happened to the Jews, it's, it's what could happen to any people. And we could talk about, uh, you know, other horrors in history. Uh, and the, the danger of keeping silent when you should be shouting. And yet, we still don't have this legislation passed. So it's not just about Tennessee. You know, it's about a thinking in this country that doesn't want to go to a certain place it needs to go. Yeah, well, we've come a long way. We've come a long way. And, and I think this is where we, we use our influence. Every year, February, Black History Month, we have 3,000 school kids that come from the public schools around Brooklyn, come to our church and our performing arts ministries, which is made up of, you know, people who are on Broadway and uh, uh, et cetera. They come together and they put together a complete uh, African-American history uh, lesson. But it includes the Holocaust. It includes what happened in the Berlin mm -hmm. Wall. It includes all of that. Because, unfortunately, our kids don't know these stories. They don't know this history. And that's our way of doing everything we can to bring that level of education to the children. 
Yeah. yeah. You, you know, Reverend, I'm going to I'm going to say something perhaps a little bit provocative. And I think it's a responsibility of the Jewish people and others. And this is something that my teacher, Tal Becker, has said regularly when it comes to uh, fighting between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And that is we are we are vying, we are gunning for the championship of victimhood, that we want to hold the trophy saying we are the bigger victim. We've had more trauma in our life. And I think that at times the African-American community in America and the Jewish community in America go toe-to-toe on these things. And there are times where people say, oh, you've got to be kidding me on this front or on the other front. What we need to do a better job at is, A, demonstrating empathy for the other side, and B, realizing that both groups have gone through trauma. They're not the same, but both groups are going through trauma. And we need to jettison the whataboutisms. We, as the Jewish people, need to be the first offering consolation, condemnation at all of these historically black colleges that have been receiving bomb threats and death threats on a daily basis during Black History Month, and let them know they have a friend in the Jewish Mm. community, that we stand shoulder to shoulder with them, and that we will not sit idly by. And it has nothing to do with our history. We just won't do it. We yeah. cannot That's have that, comparative. Yeah, you make a good point, uh, Rabbi. Th- this competitive victimization. Yep. My problem is worse than anyone else's, and 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 you know we 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 hold that up uh, for the kind of sympathy. We we've all been wounded in some way. We've all experienced this kind of trauma, uh, and I, I I will tell you, uh, we we could look at the history and say that at certain periods some uh, communities experienced it more than others, but across the board. It's a pain that we have to move on from, but we can't do it if we don't appreciate understanding that history so we don't repeat it. There is nothing good that comes of it. We indulge in this competitive, comparative suffering. You know, my, uh, you have a single hernia, I have a double hernia. It goes (laughs) nowhere except to a negative place. so I, I agree with you. Let, let, let just extend, you know, uh, what goes on to what's happening today, what, what's happened before what's happening today. Look at the Beijing Olympics, right? It's no secret or shouldn't be a secret that the Uyghurs are being persecuted by China. And yet you wouldn't know that by looking at the results of the Olympics, by looking at the stories. Very little coverage, uh, Rabbi, Reverend, I hear here and there, you know, someone with a sign walking, uh, not at the Olympics, but in his or her own country, maybe a little demonstration, but nothing significant. And you get a glimpse of the past. Say, wait a minute, there was suffering going on and people went about their business. Everything kept going on as normal. Isn't that something that should worry us? So wait, let me understand this. You're saying that the Olympics should include coverage of the suffering that's going on I, in these places I think like we, China? I think we need to talk about it. I think, yeah, I think people need to highlight, you know what? This is not just about sports. You can't, you can't look at this and, uh, in a vacuum. What's being will, it, will it take away from the Olympics, though? I no. mean, when, well, when what, you have media well, I think we got to prioritize like it. That, will, will it overshadow... You know, the joy of winning gold medals, the competition. How do you balance that out? Well, Rabbi? do you remember you remember the uh, the Israeli Olympics that were slaughtered? The Israeli oh, yeah. Olympians that were slaughtered, the athletes? Yeah. Yeah. And finally it was Bob Costas that went on uh, at the opening of the game some years ago and said, We have to remember those who lost their lives. We can't you know, we, we can't just let it go because uh, in the past they were not mentioned. They weren't remembered. Mm. Yep. There, there was no moment of silence in the Olympics until Rio, and it took more than 45 years for their death to be properly recognized. And what I think you're talking about, Joe, is, is a greater issue with the IOC, which is how are they regularly going to places like Sochi and China and rewarding countries that have a history of human rights abuses? I realize that it narrows the pool down of these countries, and it might take away from the, the charter of, of the Olympics. But I think that there is some intersectionality here where we're asking ourselves, how is it we can be a place that celebrates every single individual Olympian if we don't celebrate individual rights? And that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and again, it's, you know, you look back at the Holocaust, 
And one of the great Yiddish poets said, the flowers kept blossoming, the murderers kept murdering, uh, and life went on. And I, I just think that people need to be cognizant of the human suffering that is taking place within China and not have just this kind of, again, whitewashing, sugarcoating, call it what you want, but we cannot totally ignore the suffering that goes on there as if the show must go on because sometimes the show has to stop. and We have to, you know, have a reality check and express uh, our denunciation at the denial of human rights. Uh, I agree. All right. It's good preaching, Rabbi. Thank you. Let's go to something totally, both of you are a significant preacher, teachers, leaders of congregations. We've gone through this incredible COVID challenge, and Zoom has now become part of everyday vocabulary, the Temple of Zoom. Uh, talk to us, Rabbi Kirshner. Where do you see the next chapter in terms of, you know, intersectionality between sitting in the pew, watching it on a screen? Boy, this, it's as if you're sitting in my office for our conversations with our leadership rate lately, because this is the pickle that we are in. Um, we, during the, the um, pandemic, have had hybrid services during the week. That means some people join us for services by Zoom with specific requirements. They have to have their cameras on and answer, those kinds of things, and some people in person. We had an event last night called What's the Big Whoop, talking indeed about Whoopi Goldberg. Um, this was on Wednesday night for, for when our, our listeners will, will take part of this. We had 89 people online and 54 people in person. And the person who's immunocompromised, the person who's joining us from Texas and Chicago, boy, it is great to have the beauty of Zoom. But at the same time, I am very worried about the crutch that Zoom has created for the people who live three miles away or the people who don't want to get out of their pajamas or the people who just aren't making the effort to come to synagogue. To me, the future of the faith-based world is in person. And while we can use the um, technology of Zoom for some environments and some places, we're going to have to take the masks off and we're going to have to turn the Zoom off as well. So eventually, zoom enough, as we say, so that we can get back together because it is critical for our future. Yeah, I, you know, I, I have to, I have to say that the virtual world has given a platform to many people to to access all kinds of spiritual content on demand, and and you know, this generation loves the convenience of on demand, and 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 for us and for many, it filled the void that was created by the isolation of COVID uh, nineteen. But a house of worship, whether it's a synagogue, a temple, a mosque, whatever it is, it's more than accessing content, you know, music and, and a prayer. It's a community of people with shared beliefs, values, vision, experiences, you know, and genuine community requires personal presence. I believe that wholeheartedly. One cannot take the place of the other. We have people who only see each other from Sunday to Sunday and they look forward to it because they get a chance to not only worship together, but interact in community. You know, Rev, Rabbi, in our blessing, the traditional blessing, you know, may the Lord bless you and keep you, there are three conditions that have to be met. One, it's got to be face-to-face. And when that was written, there was no Zoom. Second, it's got to be with, in the language, you know, in, in peaceful language, also holy language. If you could do it in Hebrew, that's fine. The third is with an outstretched hand, and it's hard to do that on Zoom. So I think if you look at the original intention, it was for us to be face-to-face, hand-to-hand, heart-to-heart, speaking you know, respectfully to one another. I was out in Fort Dix, New Jersey, your state, Rabbi Kirshner, and I was there as part of an interfaith group to welcome Afghan refugees. And I went over to some of the families and one guy I connected with immediately, and I said, just give me a hug. Give me a hug. And we hugged each other, and I said to him, you see, you can't do that on Zoom. Uh, no. There is something, that human warmth, that just changes the entire climate. Uh, so I hope we get back to that, but I, I suspect we're going to be living with a hybrid for a while. It's not going well, away let me, let me Let me throw a wrench in the work, Rabbi Potastic, because there's something called the, the metaverse which is 3D. You, you create an avatar of yourself, 
and you enter this world, and you actually go to church. You sit in a in in a, in a pew. Yeah. Uh, you interact with your neighbors who are other avatars, you walk through the building, you can go to a class, uh, and they're adding uh, senses to it. So if you have, you know, the right equipment, you can actually begin to feel through your senses the experience that's there. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. Our, moms, our moms didn't raise us to be avatars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm curious, Reverend, if the avatars in my synagogue would also fall asleep during my sermon. Yeah. <laughs> and also when they you probably make it, will be programmed to. <laughs> and when you make an appeal for funds, will the avatars reach into their pockets and support the effort? You know, yeah, we, there we, you go. We've come to the, the end of the segment. I, I just want to say, Rabbi Kirshner and Rev, I've known this rabbi for a number of years. And I remember when uh, he first began uh, and I was always an admirer then. I saw this is a guy with boundless talent. This is a guy who's going to change, you know, uh, a place spiritually. And he has brought this uplifting spirit uh, to where he is and wherever he goes. Uh, he's a, a profound thinker, prolific writer, uh, and a warm human being. That combination is something that is so, so needed in our pulpits today. So we're very privileged to have you with us and uh, look forward to your being with us uh, for many, many more interviews on the Rev and the Rabbi. I have to say ditto. Uh, Rabbi, thank you. My, the check is in the mail for those kind words. I really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I've heard that from you before, and I, yeah. I go to that mailbox every day, and, you know, you, there isn't even an hope. avatar that brings me You go to that mailbox with hope. I'm looking to that for you, the avatar to bring me something. Yeah. You... you <laughs> You read those comments exactly yeah. as I wrote them out for you. That was perfect. And, and by the way, uh, Rev, let me tell you something else about the rabbi. I, I often say you judge a person by how he is with his family. Uh, not only is he an outstanding husband, father, but a son. I know his mom. To see how he treats his parent, uh, for me, and I knew his father of blessed memory. When I first became a member of the Board of Rabbis, I, I, I met his dad. And to see how he treats his family speaks volumes to me. You want to, you, you say belief is measured by behavior. It's your deeds. David Seth Kirshner, your deeds really, really reveal who you really are. And uh, we are proud of you uh, as others who know you are proud of you. Thank you. Thank Amen you. It's that. an honor to be with you both. And uh, let's, let's enjoy the Super Bowl today in good health and peace. Amen to that. Wait a minute. This, the Patriots are not in it. What's to enjoy? Brady is hey, retired. Hey, hey. Brady is now emeritus. <laughs> the game is not over just because Brady's not in it anymore, uh, you Boston fans. Uh, and to all you Boston fans out there, I apologize. But stay tuned. We'll be back with more <laughs> right here on 77 WABC, The Rev and The Rabbi.